I'm Rhys T. Matthews, and this is Queer Margins, Series 1, Old Queens. This podcast talks to those in the LGBTQ plus community who are rarely heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. However, this special Pride edition will hear from a person who is a little more used to getting his voice heard. So this is episode 14. Peter. I can remember the first time we ever had sex. Um, I lay back on the bed and thought to myself, if this is what being gay is, I am definitely gay. (laughs) And I thought, it's wonderful. So I just simply switched from this Christian fundamentalist view of homosexuality into a totally liberated view of myself as a young gay man. I, I never had a moment's guilt. I thought to myself, the Bible's got it wrong. If you haven't heard of Peter Tatchell, he's a human rights campaigner whose work has meant the LGBTQ plus community have taken huge steps forward over the last few decades. As you'll hear, he's been massively influential in the queer movement and has been involved in so many groundbreaking campaigns. I got into contact with Peter a couple of months ago because I've been really interested in talking to him for some time now. I feel like I've always been aware of his activism, but our conversation really made me realise just what he and others like him have done for us, and what he continues to do through the Peter Tatchell Foundation. I spoke to Peter about a week after the news broke about Brunei's strict new laws that made anal sex and adultery offences punishable by stoning to death. In the past week, Peter's written a piece for The Guardian, openly criticising Pride for selling out its soul to rainbow-branded capitalism, saying that 50 years after Stonewall, the LGBTQ plus movement have abandoned its dreams of sexual democracy. So I can see the irony of publishing my conversation with him as a Pride special, and on the day of London Pride. But I think that Pride can look differently to different people. And I think people can disagree wholeheartedly with how many Pride events look today, It's important to remember that even if you do feel like that or you can't get to a pride celebration or if you don't have other queer people or allies to celebrate your queerness with, then you can still celebrate pride. And remember that pride comes in many forms. And if celebrating pride means partying all day or if it means putting your earphones in and listening to a podcast, then happy pride to you, however you celebrate it. Here's Peter. Of course, when I was growing up in Australia in the 1960s, there was absolutely zero visibility of LGBT people and issues. They just were totally absent. I had no reference point other than occasional newspaper reports about elderly men molesting young boys and ending up in court and prison. That was my idea of what a homosexual was. But uh, I had to leave school at the age of 16 to support my family. I went to work in a department store doing art and design. And there I met other gay people around my own age. And that completely disabused me of the stereotype that I had fixed in my mind. You know, these were young, handsome, intelligent, creative, very likable people. So that opened in my own mind a sort of different perspective. And over time, I began to question whether I might be gay. Um, I'd had girlfriends, but of course, coming from a very strict fundamentalist Christian family, I'd never had sex with them. And in fact, you know, I'd never really got turned on 
by women, or indeed to that point, by men either. But anyway, the long shot was that um, I eventually um, ended up falling in love with one of the guys at work. We had a relationship, and I can remember the first time we ever had sex. Um, I lay back on the bed and thought to myself, if this is what being gay is, I am definitely gay. <laughs> and I thought, it's wonderful. You know, why is everybody so anti-gay when, for those of us who are gay, it's such a wonderful experience? So I just simply switched from this Christian fundamentalist view of homosexuality into a totally liberated view of myself as a young gay man. I, I never had a moment's guilt. I thought to myself, the Bible's got it wrong. You know, the Bible is supposed to protect people against sins, against bad things that people do to each other. It's about protecting people against harm. Well, quite clearly, me and my boyfriend, we're not harming anyone. We're in love. We're, you know, sharing, you know, not just the sex, but the emotions, the commitment, the relationship. And how can that be wrong? So I just didn't have any shame or guilt. I just saw the proof of the pudding was in the eating, so to speak. When did you tell your parents, that, or did you tell your parents that you were gay? I didn't initially tell my parents because I feared their reaction. I thought they'd probably have <laughs> a mental breakdown. I thought they might dob me into the police. So I was, I was too afraid. But what I did begin to do was drop hints, like if um, there was any report, say, about... Uh, a man being jailed for molesting young boys, I'd say something like, that is terrible, that's totally wrong. But if he was with another man, they were in love, that'd be fine. My parents would have a, give a startled look. But I did things like that, or eventually later on, I, I read reports about gay rights protests in New York. And so I mentioned that to my mum and dad and said, you know, you know, gay people shouldn't be treated like criminals, you know. It's their own business. It's the state shouldn't be, be on their backs and people shouldn't condemn them. And so over time, they sort of put two and two together and got four. And my parents, in retrospect, say that was a very good way of handling it. They said they could not have coped if I just told them straight out. But this slow drip, drip, drip of hints that made it easier ease them into the process of coming to a recognition that I was gay. Did you experience much homophobia in Australia when you were, when you were growing up? Uh, it was an incredibly homophobic period. You know, gay bashings were rife, often involving the police. So police officers, either on duty or in plain clothes, would go out gay bashing. They'd go to uh, parks or uh, beaches where gay men went and beat them up. And they got away with it because... Everybody regarded gay people as such monsters. They got what they deserved. Um, there was allegedly a man murdered uh, on a gay beat uh, near St Kilda. I think it was about 1970, maybe 69. He was murdered and the word on the street was that he was killed by police officers, beaten to death by police officers, but no one was ever charged. You know, certainly, unless you worked in certain professions you know, being gay would get you the sack. So working in the art and design department of a big department store, 
more than half the staff there were gay. Um, that was just taken for granted. And the boss was gay, so he wasn't going to sack anybody. Um, but beyond that, I mean, people had to be very, very careful because, you know, landlords would refuse them to rent them property or evict them from property they'd been rented to. Um, you know, employers would sack them or refuse to hire them. It was a very, very, very tough period. You know, there was no, there was no support in those days. So in, in Melbourne, up until the point I left in 1971 to come to London, there were no LGBT organisations, no helplines, no counselling services, nothing. Just a couple of seedy bars, no clubs. Most people socialised through sort of dinner circles or private party circles because the pub pubs were really seedy and, and, and very dangerous because gay bashers regularly hang out used to hang out and beat people up and the police would just look the other way. When I came to London in 1971, there'd been a partial decriminalisation of male homosexuality in England and Wales uh, in 1967. But actually, the level of arrests and prosecutions was greater in the early 70s than it had been in the mid-60s before decriminalisation. The police in particular would target parks, public toilets, cruising areas... So it wasn't entirely problem-free, but overall, if you did what you did behind closed doors, with the doors and windows locked, with no other person present in any part of the house, and it was only two of you, that was legal, uh, and you couldn't be prosecuted for it. Of course, providing you were 21 or over. And when I arrived, I wasn't. I was only 19. So I was still designated a criminal. The big difference was that... Although there were no, well, there were some, but not very well-known counselling services, um, there was no switchboard that was created by myself and others in the Gay Liberation Front, which I joined within days of arriving. Um, The Gay Liberation Front number, the office number, at 5 Caledonian Road in the basement of what is now Houseman's Bookshop, that became a de facto switchboard, a helpline. You know, we just take it in turns to staff the phones to receive calls from all over Britain and all over the world, lonely, isolated LGBT people, um, people who are suicidal, people who suffer discrimination, people who have been framed by the police. We gave them advice. And to this day, that same phone number is the number of the London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. It survived all these years. But, you know, being involved in, in the Gay Liberation Front was a, incredible personal liberation prior to that you know i had been doing one person lgbt activism in melbourne but not very effectively and not not really making much of an impact but i had previously been involved in the campaign to end capital punishment um to defend and support aboriginal civil and land rights and against australia's involvement in the vietnam war alongside the americans and the draft for that war. So I was already quite a seasoned political activist when I came to London. But for LGBT activism, the Gay Liberation Front was really the first serious you know, experience that I had. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, was awesome and amazing to go to the weekly meetings, uh, which by that time were being held in All Saints Church Hall in Power Square, Nottingham Gate, 
um, the weekly meetings had like you know three to five hundred people every week. Oh, really? Yeah, a, a mass, a, quite chaotic, but but mass democracy in action, where the people at the meeting decided the agenda, and to have so many people come out and be proud and defiant, that was a complete change in terms of the mindset compared to what I'd experienced in Melbourne. Um, I can remember trying to ask some of the gay friends at work and others I met subsequently uh, about setting up a gay rights organisation or campaigning for an end to criminalisation, and they were all horrified. You know, they said, go away, you're 17, what do you know? You'll get us all arrested. You're, you're trouble. Get, rid of, get out of here. <laughs> um, but in London, it was completely the reverse. You know, there were, of course, still a majority of LGBT people who were in the closet and still a majority who did not support campaigning. The, the, the common you know, refrain from most LGBT people was uh, best to stay quiet and keep our heads down. Well, the Gay Liberation Front used to say, well, put your heads down, you get your heads kicked in. We have to stand tall and proud. We have to be defiant. We have to show we're not victims. We have to fight back. And so I was very quickly and early on involved in the action group of the Gay Liberation Front. And we did a lot of actions, broadly, well, from my perspective, modeled on the black civil rights movement in America, uh, like sit-ins at pubs that refused to serve LGB or T people, you know, campaigns in solidarity with the women's liberation movement against the Miss World contest, uh, activism against the medicalization and uh, psychiatricization of homosexuality by, by doctors and psychiatrists. So you like hit the ground running in terms of activism as soon as you moved to London. Yeah. And um, a lot of people that I've spoken to in this series about the 70s, 80s queer life in London, you seem to be, you seem to pop up quite a lot. Why is that so important to you? It's taken over your like it's dominated your life, really, isn't it? Particularly LGBT activism. Yeah. Why is this so important to you? Well, activism is the way in which we change things for the better. You know, protest is the lifeblood of democracy. You know, without protest, we don't have a true democracy. We have a formal parliamentary democracy, but to me, uh, democracy is about much more than voting in elections. It's also about holding governments, police the media, the church, to account. And to do that, you need to protest. You need to challenge injustice. You need to shine a light on bad things that are being done and then campaign to stop them. So for me, um, my campaigning has been, you know, in the tradition of the suffragettes, the chartists, a lot of direct action protests, particularly in the Gay Liberation Front era, and again, uh, in outrage in the 1990s, um, you know, faced with people in power and authority who would not listen, who closed their hearts and their minds to change, we had to challenge them, and we had to do some quite, you know, confrontational and and, and risky things to put LGBT issues on the public agenda, to get the news coverage to raise public awareness about what was being done to us, which was largely hidden in those days, because most papers didn't report it. So the scale of murders of LGBT people was barely reported in the press in those days. Yet they were happening, you know, dozens every year that we knew about, and probably even more we didn't. 
So shining a light on that violence was really crucial in eventually persuading the police to take homophobia more seriously. And it was a long, long, hard battle. You know, initially, we got nowhere with the police. They didn't want to know. They said, you're criminals. Why should we help a criminal? So we said, well, we are also citizens. And, you know, whatever we may do in our personal and private lives, we are still entitled to the protection of the law. And that nothing of what we do can ever justify the scale of violence against us. And then, of course, we we then challenged also the um, high-level police harassment that exists in those days, raids on bars, clubs and saunas. And the police used to get away with outrageous behaviour. You know, they'd stand outside the, the Colhoun Pub and Earls Court, for example, and push people coming out at closing time, push them around the pavement. And anybody who sort of didn't just fall down, or they'd be arrested for resisting, resisting the police or assaulting a police officer. And they'd, they'd organise you know, the youngest, most attractive officer in the station to dress in you know, tight white jeans, black boots, leather jacket, and go out into a park and public toilet, actually take out his dick and wave it around, and any man who responded would get arrested. I mean, argent provocateur, entrapment. And the, the police were a law unto themselves. They could get away with anything. I mean, I can remember being arrested in October 1971, at the Chepstow pub in West London. Um, we'd gone there, the Gay Liberation Front, about 40 of us, to demand to be served because the landlord had a notice or made it clear he was not serving queers. So we turned up and demanded to be served. When he refused, we sat down in the pub. And, of course, he called the police. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just the local police that arrived. They sat in the heavy squad, the sort of... Um, uh, black Mariahs, you know, about five van loads of black police in Black Mariahs. Uh, that, you know, I don't know what, what the name of that particular group was, but they were the tough guys. And we were dragged out quite roughly. And I was one of about 12 people selected to, and made to stand in the um, sort of laneway at the side of the Chepstow pub. It was a freezing night. We were made to strip down to our underpants and then a big burly sergeant came along the line of us and put his hand into our underpants and squeezed our testicles until we screamed. Uh, squeezed our testicles until we screamed. Why? Just to humiliate and punish us. And and the police could do that in those days. You know, there was no independent police complaints procedure or anything like that. And you know, you'd get twenty police officers lying through their teeth, and a judge would believe them. Or even if two or three police officers were lying and there were ten of us, the judge would still believe the police. Well, like we've spoken about so far, you, you're a member of the Gay Liberation Front. You're at London's first Pride. You um, helped set up outrage. Don't you ever get tired? Don't you ever just want to do nothing? I would love to work nine to five yeah. instead of <laughs> nine till two a.m. Mm -hmm. and weekends. Um, but... There's an urgency in what I do. You know, I see injustice and I want to do something about it. And I know that I personally can't change much, but me with others, we can change the world. And we are changing the world. When you think about the explosion of LGBT activism across the globe in the last 40 years, it has been probably the most fast, successful social movement of all time. Obviously aided by new technology and increased global travel. 
But, you know, it's been such an honour to be part of this movement. And I just think that, you know, compared to what life was like for LGBT plus people when I was growing up, you know, we're in a completely different era here in countries like Britain. Obviously not in Russia or, you know, Tanzania or Indonesia, but, you know, we have fundamentally changed things. Mm -hmm. And that's been down to our own efforts primarily, but also, of course, the support we've had from straight allies. So what's the thing that you've worked on that makes you most proud of I can't really pick out one thing, but I suppose the outrage campaign against police harassment in the early 1990s, that was pretty phenomenal. Um, we basically turned around the way in which the Metropolitan Police and other police services around the country treated our community. And we sometimes had to take quite extreme measures, like going in and occupying police stations interrupting the press conferences of the police commissioner and senior officers, you know, photographing undercover police officers uh, and to warn people about entrapment, you know, exercises, um, you know, stapling warnings on trees in places like Hampstead Heath or Clapham Common, uh, fly post them in public toilets. We, we, we made waves, mm -hmm. but we had to. And because we made waves, the police began to change. Now, initially, when outrage was set up, we tried to negotiate with the police. Indeed, we brought together a coalition of LGBT groups to negotiate with the police. And they'd invite us to New Scotland Yard, they'd give us tea and sandwiches, they'd smile, they'd shake our hands, and then quickly go and wash their hands afterwards, uh, I'm told. But nothing changed. So after three months of this, we outrage said, well, this is just a PR exercise for the police. It's just window dressing. They're not really interested. We are quitting. And the police thought, oh, good, got rid of the troublesome ones. You know, they're no longer on our, on our, on our backs. But, but then we resorted to a very high-profile direct action campaign. Like I said, you know, occupying police stations. And the way we pitched it was very, very, I think, astute. We pitched it that why are the police wasting resources on arresting gay and bisexual men for consenting victimless behaviour when they claim they've got no officers to deal with racist attacks sexual violence against women, and of course, queer bashing attacks against the LGBT community. And even people who are not particularly pro-gay got that, you know. I mean, we used to often contact local residents associations and say, look, we hear you've been complaining about a spate of street burglaries in your area. We've heard that the police have told you they haven't got enough officers to deal with it. Well, the reason is because they're staking out the public toilet at the end of the road all hours of the night and day, four or five officers at a time, that's why they're not dealing with your serious, you know, personal robberies and, and, and assaults. And so even people who were not particularly sympathetic got that and they understood that and that they became quite supportive of our campaign. So, I mean, the upshot of that campaign was that we created such bad publicity for the police. You know, we highlighted them arresting two lesbians for kissing each other goodbye at Victoria Station. And even people didn't didn't have particular sympathy for LGBT people, thought arresting for, for a kiss on the cheek or a bit of a cuddle, that's just absurd. So the police lost the PR battle, so they then turned around and pleaded for outrage to come back to negotiate. So we said, fine, we will come back on the condition that it's action, not talk. So we went back with an action plan, I think 12 points for what we called a non-homophobic policing policy. And these were things like to appoint an LGBT liaison officer, to um, not feel obliged to 
arrest and prosecute men for consenting behaviour, particularly if it's in the middle of the night in a park or something, opt for cautions, opt for giving warnings in advance, which could be publicised through the LGBT press or through posters in public toilets or whatever. A whole whole host of things. And that completely threw the police because they just saw us as a protest group. They thought we're just, you know, rattling the cage and banging and angry. But when we came back with practical, sensible proposals, which we said were adopted in Copenhagen, Stockholm, Amsterdam and other European cities, they were completely thrown because there we were issuing an ultimatum. This is what you could do. This is achievable. It's being done by other police services around Europe. Mm -hmm. You do it. So the upshot was that within a year, they'd agreed to over two-thirds of our demand for a non-homophobic policing policy. And within three years, the number of gay and bisexual men who were convicted for consenting adult same-sex behavior fell by two-thirds. The biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. So we literally saved thousands of gay and bisexual men from the humiliation of arrest and the stigma and taint of a criminal conviction. Uh, so that I, that's one campaign I'm really, really proud of. And I want to emphasize it was not just me. It was the outrage collectivity which did it. What would you say to people who say that LGBT rights in Britain are fine now? There's no need to do anything about them anymore. It's, we're, we're at a level now that we don't have to worry about. I would say that, yes, we have made huge progress. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world. Some of them dating back centuries. Yet here we are, less than two decades later, and we have some of the best laws. That has been, without any doubt, the fastest, most successful law reform campaign in British history, perhaps even in world history. Because I can't think of any other marginalised community that's ever achieved so much reform in such a short space of time. And that, of course, is a tribute to the tens of thousands of LGBT people across the, across the country who marched and protested, who wrote letters to MPs, who lobbied government ministers and so on. Mm-hmm. Plus, of course, our straight friends and allies. We, together, have done it. But there is still unfinished business. You know, we know that even today, 45% of LGBT kids in schools have or are being bullied. Name-calling, teasing, threats, menaces, harassment, even actual physical violence. 45%. And on the streets, well over a third of LGBT people, approaching a million LGBT people, have been victims of homophobic, biophobic or transphobic hate crime. Often, not just once, but two or three or four times throughout their lives. So, quite clearly... We're not there yet. And there's lots of other issues. I mean, the whole question of the um, three-month deferral period for gay and bisexual blood donors. I mean, that's better than the previous 12-month deferral and before that, the lifetime ban. But it's still not based upon individual assessment. Mm -hmm. There'll be some gay and bisexual men who test HIV negative, who are in monogamous long-term relationships, who always practice safer sex, there is no reason why they should not 
give blood. The blanket three-month deferral is homophobic and has to change. Likewise, uh, LGBT refugees fleeing persecution in other countries still get a very rough deal. Um, the whole asylum system is rigged against refugees, but it's particularly tough for LGBT ones to prove their sexuality or gender identity and then to get asylum. It's, it's really, really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is so unfair. I mean, my own foundation, I think virtually every single case we have helped in the last eight years has won. In fact, I can't, I can go, can I only think of one case where we didn't succeed? Mm-hmm. But that hands-on support has been vital and essential to get those people a place of refuge. If they were just left to their own devices, they would probably be refused and sent back because the system is so, so rigged to make sure as many people fail as possible. Mm. How long has the Peter Tapsaw Foundation been running for now? Uh, since 2011. Do you have any advice for younger queer people based on your experiences? Well, obviously, the life you're living and the country in which you're living is completely changed from when I was growing up and in my late teens and first involved in the Gay Liberation Front. You know, public attitudes have changed. So you think about in the late 1980s, over two-thirds of the British public said that homosexuality was mostly always wrong. Now it's less than 20%. Still a significant minority, but nothing like the two-thirds plus uh, majority before. And when you think about it, I mean, the plethora of you know, gay clubs and bars and social venues, the dating apps... It's much easier to meet a partner, to go out and have fun. The levels of homophobic violence are not eradicated, but much less than in the past. Um, you know, we now have legal protection against discrimination in housing, employment, and the provision of goods and services. So there's been so many gains won. But I would caution young people to say, well, remember this was won by an early generation who often made considerable personal sacrifices to ensure it happened. And we should not take it for granted that these rights and freedoms will remain forever. I can't foresee right now how things could ever be rolled back. But who can say what might happen in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time? I mean, if we had runaway climate destruction or a repeat on a more extreme scale of the financial crash of 2007-2008, who can say what, how, the, how the political climate might change? And in those kind of situations, far-right movements tend to gain support, and they often do so on the basis of, we need strong government, we need to take strong measures to fix the problem. And in the past... They've often targeted Jews, immigrants, or LGBT people. Now, I doubt that's going to happen again, but I can't say with any certainty. So we need to remain vigilant. And I think it's worthwhile remembering um, the experience of Germany in the 1930s. Uh, If you take 1930 Berlin, it was the queer capital of the world. You know, dozens of gay bars and clubs, sporting associations, theatrical troops... Um, lobby groups, everything seemed set for real progress for LGBT rights. And then, 
1930, Hitler became Chancellor. Uh, in 1933, uh, three years later, in 1933, Hitler became Chancellor. And within the year, the first gay men had been carted off to concentration camps. All the gay bars and clubs and other venues were closed down. Um, gay newspapers and magazines were banned. Uh, all the theatrical and sporting associations were shut down. Everything went into reverse. So it shows that you can't assume that what exists now will remain forever. And you can't take for granted the idea that progress is a unilinear, unilinear straight line. You know, sometimes, and in fact often in history, um, gains won can be lost or at least uh, diminished to some extent. I saw that you were at the demonstrations outside the uh, Dorchester Hotel. Do you think Britain's got a responsibility to represent LGBT people and LGBT rights across the world? Well, let's look at the scenario of where we are. There are still 69 countries where homosexuality is still a crime. Nearly half of those criminalise both male and female homosexuality. Uh, more than half are members of the Commonwealth, despite its Commonwealth Charter, which enshrines human rights and non-discrimination for all Commonwealth citizens. So we've got 69 countries where there's a total ban on same-sex relations. And that is more than a third of all the countries in the world. Well over a third of all the countries in the world. So there really is a serious problem on a global scale. Having said that, in the last four decades, probably about 40 countries have decriminalised same-sex relations. Most recently, India, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and Angola. But we still have a battle on our hands, and in some countries, it's actually going backwards. So Russia introduced that new anti-gay law in 2013, forbidding the promotion of non-traditional sexual relations to young people under 18. But the way it's been interpreted, it means if you hold up a placard in the street calling for LGBT equality, you can be nabbed on the assumption that an 18-year-old person might be passing by. Uh, lots of LGBT teachers and university lecturers have been sacked from their jobs because they're deemed to be, by their very existence, promoting non-traditional sexual relations. And then you look to other countries like Ethiopia, Tanzania and Indonesia. Previously, no serious history of homophobic, biophobic or transphobic witchants, but now cracking down really hard on the LGBT community. Um, we've gone through the horrors of Islamic State in Syria, where known or suspected gay and bisexual men were thrown off the tops of tall buildings. And then if they didn't die by the fall, they were stoned to death. Um, we've got Brunei's new legislation, which provides for the stoning to death of people who uh, have same-sex relations, commit adultery, or insult the Prophet Muhammad. You know, the first time ever that Brunei has introduced Sharia law, it is now the only country in South and Southeast and uh, East Asia with Sharia law. Um, it's a completely regressive step. So again, you know, 
although the overall global trajectory is towards greater rights for queer people, um, there is backlash in about 20 to 25 countries. That's bad, but it's still a very clear minority of the 193 member states in the United Nations. In terms of how we advance LGBT rights globally, I don't think this is a responsibility of Britain or the West. It's the responsibility of the whole international community. Having said that, obviously change has to come from within. It cannot be dictated from outside. So the best thing that the international community can do is to support those brave LGBT campaigners in those countries and, of course, their straight friends and allies. Um, we can support them by giving them training in human rights activism. We can support them by funding things like photocopiers, uh, printing presses, um, computers, mobile phones, cameras, all the kinds of basic equipment you need to do successful campaigning. Um, we can also support them by raising these issues in international forums like the African Union, the Commonwealth, the United Nations, the European Union and so on. The more these issues are discussed, the more normalised they become, um, the more those who perpetuate discrimination will feel less confident about speaking out against our rights and our freedoms. I mean, in extreme cases, I think there is uh, an argument for a combination of boycotts, sanctions and disinvestments. So with regard to Brunei, I've argued that countries around the world should suspend diplomatic, economic and military ties with Brunei until they repeal these extreme ISIS-like Sharia laws. Uh, but also, in a more concerted sense, uh, the international community ought to be thinking about a program of boycotts, disinvestment and sanctions to hit Brunei financially. Because sadly, although the human rights arguments should be enough and should take primacy, for countries with anti-gay laws, it cuts no ice. But money does talk. We need to hit them in the pocket. We need to show them that homophobia, biphobia and transphobia do not pay. It was great talking to a gay legend like Peter, whose work has had a massive effect on the face of the queer movement. If you want to find out more about Peter's work, you can go to petertatchellfoundation.org to see his work and that of the foundation. And by clicking on the Join Us button, you can sign up for weekly updates covering quite left-field issues that no one else is talking about. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed, then please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching at Queer Margins. And happy Pride! <laughs>